scripture reading this afternoon is from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, the year for canceling debts. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt that your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commandments I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land, the Lord your God is giving you. Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, before I uh, open the scriptures with you, I uh, just want to have one uh, quick word. Um, I'm aware that now that we're two years into this pandemic, um, that it's really taking its toll on us. We're exhausted, I think, with it. And for many people, it's difficult to know whether or not to come uh, in person to worship. It's lovely to see all of you who are here, and I know that others come some weeks and don't come other weeks. But uh, on behalf of the pastoral team who met this week to, to keep wrestling with this issue of should we be meeting in person or not, I just want to say uh, we, we want to encourage all of those of you who don't feel that you can come. Uh, please be encouraged. It's uh, perfectly okay if you feel that uh, you need to stay away uh, because you perhaps have been in contact with somebody with COVID or simply you just want to be careful. We quite understand that. We just want to affirm people whether you, your preference is to come and to be present here 
or to participate online, we just want to affirm you, encourage you, uh, and tell you we care for you and we want to do everything we can uh, to support you as pastors. Uh, so please do be in touch if there's anything that we can do. Uh, we love you and we, we long to see you, but we understand if that's not possible at this present time. Uh, let me just pray. Lord, we long for this pandemic to be over. We long to be able to fully enjoy one another's presence again. We long to be able to encounter you in one another. But in this intervening time, help us to continue to be faithful, to love one another and care for one another despite the challenges. Uh, we pray particularly, Lord, that this service as it's uh, broadcast and then watched perhaps as a recording would still carry the blessing of your spirit. We pray for a blessing on all of those uh, who are part of this service, whether it's in person or uh, at a distance. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would uh, open our minds and our hearts, that you would fill us afresh with your spirit, that we would come to your word with a, an eagerness to hear your voice. Lord, I pray that you would uh, give me only the words that I should speak and no words that I shouldn't that we would hear what you want to say, that people would understand the word as you intend it to be, to be expressed. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the power of your spirit to uh, hear and to obey. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, as a church, we've been walking through the book of Acts together, and the early chapters of Acts describe the very first church, the church in Jerusalem. And as this church is set before us by Luke, the author of Acts, we're given a portrait of the, the fundamental foundations, not just of the church in Jerusalem, but of all the churches down the centuries that were to follow. At the end of Acts chapter 2, Luke summarizes uh, these foundations. So we're going to look again, at, first of all, at that passage. Uh, this is Acts chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We can't miss that right in the center of that description, Luke says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, we might conclude that that was just a nice ideal that operated in the first few weeks of the church. But at the end of Acts chapter 4, which is our passage for today, and in a dramatic story at the beginning of Acts chapter 5 that we'll look at in a few weeks' time, Luke expands on this theme. 
And in chapter 4, he focuses our attention on a particular example of this generous giving and on a specific person. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. It'll be on the screen again, and we're going to read today's passage, which is Acts 4, 32 to 37. Acts 4, beginning to read at verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This passage is the first mention of Barnabas, a character who's going to be very important in the book of Acts and in the early church. It seems clear that he is one of the first converts under the earliest preaching of the apostles. Most likely, he was converted on the day of Pentecost. We're told that his real name was Joseph, but the, the apostles give him this nickname, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Uh, Bar or son uh, is, is a way of indicating that his nickname refers to his character. They don't just call him Joe, short for Joseph. They call him Encourager. He's a Jew. He's from the island of Cyprus. And he's probably in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost with his cousin, John Mark, who lives in Jerusalem with his mother, Mary. It's Mary's house, which is the base for the earliest church in Jerusalem. And John Mark is going to travel with Barnabas and Paul on the first great missionary journey. And then later, he will write the book that we know as the Gospel of Mark. We're also told that Joseph is a Levite. In other words, he comes from the priestly family. In this respect, he's not unlike Paul. He has a, a conservative Jewish upbringing. But that upbringing has been in the context of the wider Roman Empire rather than in Israel. Apart from the 12 apostles, Barnabas is the first named member of the fledgling church. And he gets this honor, I would suggest, because he typifies what it means to be part of this community. And the first evidence of this, but by no means the last, is that he sells his property and brings the money to the apostles so that they can give it to anyone in the new community who's in need. It's interesting that despite this act of generosity and Barnabas's evident reputation as an encourager, he is not selected as one of the seven chosen to oversee the distribution of food uh, to the widows in the church. Perhaps it's because it's his gift 
that has made the purchase of food for so many people possible. Jesus said, you'll remember, that when we give, we shouldn't let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. It's an important principle of Christian giving that when we give, we we don't retain control of what we've given. Now, our giving can't always be entirely in secret, but it mustn't ever give us power over the people or the causes that we've given to. I think it's interesting, too, that later on, after Stephen has been stoned to death and the church in Jerusalem begins to uh, suffer under heavy persecution, Barnabas doesn't leave, as most of the Christians actually do. He's still there in the city when Saul begins to destroy the church, going from house to house, dragging men and women off to prison. Now, to set the scene for our verses in Acts chapter 4 more fully, I'd like to follow Barnabas' story a little bit further before we return and look at this act of generous giving in more detail. So the next time that we hear about Barnabas is shortly after the conversion of Saul. Uh, Paul, as he now is, his name is changed from Saul to Paul. Paul has been converted near Damascus, and he's become a preacher of faith in Jesus. His preaching is so bold that it swiftly gets him into trouble, and he has to escape uh, from Damascus under cover of night. He's lowered uh, from the city wall in a basket, you remember, to avoid those who are waiting to kill him at the city gates. Paul then heads to Jerusalem to join the believers there. But understandably, the disciples in Jerusalem are very wary of this man who only recently was their persecutor. That's the last thing they know of him, that he's the leading persecutor of the church. Barnabas not only braves reaching out to Paul, but it's he who goes to the apostles and tells them about Paul's conversion and about his fearless preaching in Damascus. So it's on the basis of Barnabas's word that Paul is embraced by the church that he was so recently persecuting. Perhaps even more surprising is Barnabas's next appearance in the story that is recounted by Luke in Acts. Let me read to you some verses from Acts chapter 11. Again, I think we have them on the screen. Acts chapter 11, starting at verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks, that is, Gentiles also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Barnabas is given an extraordinary responsibility. 
rather than send one of the 12 apostles to lead the first major church outside Jerusalem, which would seem by far the most obvious course of action, wouldn't it? It is Barnabas who is sent to be the leader of the church that is soon going to eclipse Jerusalem as the center of Christian mission, a church which was already evangelizing non-Jews, the church in Antioch. We mustn't understate the extraordinary trust which the apostles placed in Barnabas when they gave him this responsibility. This is an emerging church which was growing really quickly and which appeared to be doctrinally and practically unsound. But when Barnabas arrives there with, with all of the authority of the apostles and the mother church, he doesn't judge those who are acting differently. He recognizes that God is at work and true to his name. He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Unlike Peter, who needs a vision from God to recognize that the Lord is at work in the evangelization of non-Jews, you remember the, the sheet that comes down that's filled with animals? Unlike Peter, Barnabas is able to see the Lord's hand moving in unexpected ways, whether it be in Paul's conversion or in the church at Antioch. And when he does, he offers encouragement. But the passage has even more to say in recognition of Barnabas. First of all, Luke emphasizes in verse 24 that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord as a result of this goodness, this fullness, and this faith. But to me, even more extraordinary, with all of the prestige involved in this high-profile pastoral appointment, one of Barnabas' first acts is to share this role with others. Uh, so reading on again in Acts chapter 11, verse 25, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Once it's clear that things are going well with this community, Barnabas sets off to Turkey. He goes to get Paul and have Paul join him. Uh, some years have passed since he last saw Paul, perhaps six. Uh, it's only two weeks that Barnabas had spent with Paul back then, but he's kept in touch, he's kept Paul in mind, and even though he knows that Paul has caused trouble and stirred up death threats in Damascus and Jerusalem, he still seeks him out. What's most remarkable is that Barnabas knows that Paul is a larger-than-life character who will inevitably become more prominent than him in the church at Antioch. But he has no hesitation, no ego that gets in the way of releasing Paul's leadership gifts. Well, there's a lot more that we could say about Barnabas, but these first stories of his acts of encouragement, I think, are enough to show what his character was really like. Luke presents Barnabas to us as the archetypal follower of Jesus. 
Luke's example of what those who claim to be believers should be like. And it's no accident that generous giving is the first thing that we're told about Barnabas. Back in verse 36 of chapter 4, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, does this example mean that we should put all our money together and live as a church from a common purse? Well, no, I don't think that that's what's being said here. You may have heard of the Essenes. They were a first century Jewish sect. They lived in a community at Qumran. They're the group that collected the Dead Sea Scrolls. If we were living in first century Israel and we joined the Essenes, then you would have to put all of your possessions into the common pot. And out of that common pot, everyone in the community would be provided for. But here in the Jerusalem church, this sharing with one another is not forced. It's not a command. It's an exciting privilege. Let me say that again, because this is the main point I want to make today. It is an exciting privilege to share what we have with one another. Their giving was spontaneous and voluntary, and their example is an invitation to us to be equally wholehearted. John Stott says this, the important phrase is that no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. Although in fact and in law they continued to own their own goods, Yet in heart and mind, they cultivated an attitude so radical that they thought of their possessions as being available to help their needy sisters and brothers. And this radical attitude led to sacrificial action. John Calvin, commentating on this passage, wrote, We must have hearts that are harder than iron if we are not moved by the reading of this narrative. In those days, the believers gave abundantly of what was their own. We, in our day, are content not just jealously to retain what we possess, but callously to rob others. They sold their possessions in those days. In our day, it is the lust to purchase that reigns supreme. At that time, love made each person's own possessions common property for those in need. That's John Calvin speaking 400 years ago. Have you ever had, heard anything that was more contemporary than that? All through the centuries, believers have been challenged by the radical example of the Jerusalem church, exemplified by Barnabas. If we really want God to be powerfully present with us, we have to be willing to surrender all that we have for his use. We have to be willing. It's not a command that we do that now. It's an attitude towards others in the church that we're being invited to hold. Luke says, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all 
that there were no needy persons among them. The sacrificial giving that's recorded here of Barnabas, it's not an act of charity. It's an act of commitment to the church. When Barnabas sells his farm in Cyprus, he's selling his retirement. He's giving up his livelihood. Like Peter and Andrew and James and John when they put down their nets to follow Jesus, Barnabas is giving up his former life in exchange for a new one, with a new kind of security in the community of the believers instead of in his possessions. This is what so impresses the apostles. It's what reveals Barnabas as a person of such character that the church at Antioch can be trusted to him even though he's such a young believer. Barnabas's active commitment shows that he's holding nothing back from his fellow believers. To be a member of the church, not just in the first century, but in the first several centuries, and in many other places and times since. New Christians have had to be willing to be turned away from their families, to be ostracized by their communities, to endure persecution, and even to risk death, and commit their whole selves to everyone else in the church. And commitment to a local church, as it's practiced in, in much of the Western world in the 21st century, is, well, it's just a shadow of what we find in the pages of the New Testament. And Barnabas demonstrates his commitment to the community by giving up his whole former life in Cyprus. And commitment to the church was not a vague thing. It had clear, specific, practical implications. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had so that there was no needy persons among them. And that was only possible because God's grace was so powerfully at work among them. But unless we're willing to commit to one another, we can't possibly experience that extraordinary outpouring of the grace of God. I don't know about you, but I'm gripped by this phrase, all the believers were one in heart and mind. It reminds me of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, after the Last Supper, when Jesus prays for us, that we would be one just as he and the Father are one. It's the most extraordinary prayer, isn't it? And this is the question that comes to my mind. Is there economic sharing is their sharing of property in the Trinity? Well, the question doesn't even make sense, does it? Everything that is the Son's is the Father's. Everything that is the Spirit's is the Son's. And that is what Jesus prays for us. In both of the passages from Acts that we've read this afternoon, the passage at the end of Acts chapter 2 and at the end of Acts chapter 4, this is the first measure of the Christian community. It's the main subject of the description of the character of the first church, their wholeheartedness in sharing their property with one another, providing for any believer who had need. And in case you doubt that this is a good measure of the church, let me close with a few verses from John's first letter. 
This is 1 John chapter 3 from verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. If any one of you has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we think of the testimony of this first church, and of Barnabas in particular, we can see how this would have been evidence of the most profound change having taken place in people's lives. We can see how intriguing this would have made the church to those outside. And we recognize how intriguing it would make our church to those outside if we lived with this kind of commitment towards one another. Lord, we recognize that for them, perhaps, it was a commitment of, of material things. And perhaps that's the case for us too, but there may be other ways in which we need to commit to one another, to love one another, to demonstrate your grace is at work among us. And so we invite you, even this afternoon, Lord, come and work powerfully among us so that others would recognize that your grace was powerfully at work in this church. We ask this in the name of your Son, who we love. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.